0: Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about the Sly Bundle of Holding, the MCDM RPG Kickstarter, Penny Dragon Games' $1 one-shot crowdfunding campaign. We're going to look at the Lazy GM screen, two different versions of the Lazy GM screen that you can get access to. The big topics today are going to cover the Level Up Advanced 5e Adventurers Guide. We're going to do a spotlight on that. And we're going to talk about tips for running your game with paper character sheets. What are things that you can do to make it a little bit easier to use paper-based character sheets? all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of tools and supplements to help you run your role-playing games, including things like the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a whole bunch of different online tools to help you run your games, tons of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. But most of all, you help me put on shows like this to the patrons of Sly thank you so much for your support. There is currently a bundle of holding going on. I have partnered once again uh, with the bundle of holding to create a really good value of Sly Flourish books. It's only going on for another eight days, so you really want to jump on this if you do not have some of these books, because it is the it is a really really great way to get this. This is a digital book package for for PDFs and EPubs. It includes the Lazy Collection, which includes Sly Flourish's Dungeon Master Tips, my original book from like 2008, the Lazy Dungeon Master, the early 2012 version, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the most recent version of Lazy Dungeon Master, and the Lazy DM's Work. Book. Notable, it does not include the companion or Forge of Foes, but includes all of the other lazy books in one package for six bucks. That's right. You heard it correctly. Six dollars. You can also add about $14 more, I think, $14, 15 more, and get the entire fantastic collection. This includes Ruins of the Grender Root. Fantastic layers, fantastic adventures, and fantastic locations. That's 20 adventures, 23 boss layers that you can use, and 20 locations for your game with VTT-compatible maps, a whole bunch of stuff. It is a tremendous, it is a tremendous deal. You can find a link to this bundle of holding down in the show notes below. It's going on for another eight days, and it's a really good deal. So please, please check that out. Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably heard that MCDM, Matt Colville's role-playing game company, has launched the MCDM RPG. I like to bring some attention to some of the smaller activities that are going on out there to bring a little attention to things you might not have heard about. Oh, that's right. They made $2.7 million in like two days. So they're clearly doing very well. 15,000 people are backing the MCDM RPG. It is a huge product it's going to be a huge campaign it's doing really really well and looks really cool so the main thing that this focuses on there are, there are four words that describe what the, MC, the 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 general feeling of what the mcdm role-playing game is going to be and those four words are cinematic tactical heroic fantasy which i think is pretty cool I am not a big tactical RPG kind of guy. I appreciate it. I played my fourth edition. I played gridded combat and third edition a lot. I've come to enjoy a more story focused game myself. That said, I still think this is going to be a tremendous RPG and I backed it. Anyway, my friend James inter is a lead designer on the product. I've worked with James before, he's an excellent friend of mine and one of the smartest people in this hobby that I know, one of the smartest designers I've ever met. So I am very confident it's gonna be good. One of the other things that I have talked about when I did my Flea Mortals description is nobody has, I haven't seen anybody in the industry that has testing of their RPG as well refined as what MCDM does for theirs. So I have a feeling it's going to be a a very well-tested RPG. If you are looking for a tactical fantasy RPG, this looks very solid. I picked up the PDFs for it mostly because I don't know you know, because the tactical side and I've got a lot of RPGs. I don't know if I'm going to play it. I hope I'll probably play it, but I'm not going to play it big term. So I didn't back the physical versions of it, but I did back the uh, heroes and monsters PDF, $65 for both PDFs. Both are going to be very big books. So it looks really good. It was interesting. The campaign did so well that they have this thing called the Ajax edition, which is like a great big box set that includes both books and a special thing and cloth maps and all kinds of stuff. Imagine this being your beetle and grim version of the uh, product costs $500 They sold a thousand of those in an hour. He put up a new set and they sold out of another thousand of them. So they made a million dollars just on this. A million dollars gross it's always worth noting that the cost the amount of money you see is not what you should be paying attention to It's the number of backers they talked about the fact that they want to take some of the money that they get from this to invest in a VTT this brought up some questions about like is that a good source of money or are there there risks there are definitely are risks with having software like this but the main thing is you're not paying for the VTT you're paying for the books so what they decide to do with the extra money they get from this to go into a VTT sounds great will it absolutely happen they say like look it's a risk right where you can't say for sure that it will happen happen but we want to put something into this we think that they want to have their own vtt a lot of people are like well there's a lot of the other vtt's why aren't you supporting those their argument is that this way you don't have to buy it twice you just get it once and, and you get the vtt access so we'll see anyway it looks really cool and i'm very excited to see where it goes and and i you know tremendous amount of success from that from that role-playing game is fantastic Penny Dragon Games, another company I only became aware of, I got an email from somebody who said, hey, you should check out Penny Dragon Games. And I was like, hmm, okay, I'll check them out. And I did. And they actually have a Kickstarter going on right now. This is also on backer kit. It's worth noting, both of these are on backer kit, not on Kickstarter. That's really interesting. And they have 819 backers for dollar one-shot Tomb of the Undead King. So their idea is that you can get a PDF, adventure for a buck. Of course, you put more money into it, you get more things and they have other accessories that they have. I had not really heard of Penny Dragon Games before. So I went and I bought one of their products and I wanted wanted to buy one of the products that wasn't available here called Pedro's... Patero's Tome of Adventure. So I think this gives you a good idea of what their style is like, what the art is like, what the what the design of it. Patero's Tome of Adventure is thirty dollars off of their website. You can pick it up the the PDF version of it, and I did so. And it is a three hundred and twenty-eight page PDF that has a whole bunch of different adventures that are similar to this one dollar one-shot adventure. And I, I didn't give it a deep read, but I gave it a good solid skim. And I was impressed with what I saw. I think the design it looks really good. They clearly have an understanding of like what, how adventures should operate, different level. You know, it shows you all the different kinds of things that y- you have here. We'll do a quick, quick list of some of the adventures that this but like the salmon of knowledge, the party must complete with a crotchety druid to hunt a magical salmon, rumored to be able to grant the answer to any question they might ask. Of revels and revelations, a magical relic the party is relying on has been stolen under mysterious circumstances, the black rabbit. A mother cries out uh, out in the night, pleading for help, rescuing her child who has been transformed to a black rabbit by a band of wicked fae creatures. Dry woods. An unnatural drought threatens the livelihoods of varied lives of the wooded village of Needleford tower of the burning fields a wizard keep sits atop a magical stasis across a perilous path of burning fields and terrifying lava monsters but the wizard may not be done with it yet blinding sands two cults battle for control oh, cults battle for control over a magical oasis in a mirror realm one will use it to inflict destruction the other to restore life to the great desert that doesn't sound like a cult the case of Nornfolk. Nornfolk. one thing is this the the publishing group operates out of ireland so you see a lot of sort of irish folktale influences in the work which i think is pretty neat people prison a yearly festival is forced upon a remote village by a monster that holds him in thrall demanding sacrifice the curse of Cullinan. in a in a tribal land a king fights to maintain control of his kingdom as a mysterious beast ravages the village each nightfall it gives like setting type celtic religious town woodland lava plain so it gives like where where these locations are going to take place the bog, tale of the bog witch across a putrid bog and eerie chant is carried on the miss warning of the bog witch who seeks to, to trap unsuspecting travelers master of the black rock an obsidian dome with seemingly no entrances rumored to house a fortune untold. That's a good hook. And it gives levels. These are level seven to eight. Root of the problem: neighboring villages are feuding over ownership of a magical field after an ancient oak tree that once de- demarcated their borders has mysteri- mysteriously moved overnight. The unicorn's curse: the party witnesses a rare sight of a unicorn running wild through the city, with constructs in hot pursuit, leading them to the estate of a mad inventor bent on immortality. Magic punk. So cool looking, cool looking stuff. Good design, nice artwork. I really, I really like it, and I think for the what you get for a buck, you can get some pretty good. You know, pretty good feel of the kind of products that they're coming out with for this adventure. So that is Tomb of the Undead King, which you can support on Backerkit. But also if you wanted to pick up Pedro's Tome of Adventure Design, you can pick that directly off of the Penny Dragon website. Links for both of those are in the show notes. A while back, a couple a couple shows back, I talked about the Game Master screen for Lazy GMs. This is a feature that I put together for patrons of Sly Flourish. This is a four-page panel GM screen you could slide it into. If you have one of the uh, GM screens that lets you slide your own sheets inside of it, you could use this for that. Very straightforward, very utilitarian. Names, stats, conditions, all the kinds of things that you would need from material from the Lazy DM's companion and from uh, Forge of Foes. So information about how to quick build your monster. And everything like that, all built into one sheet. I thought this was a nice, a nice project to offer to patrons. One of our patrons, Elizabeth, took it and made a much more beautiful version of this that has good artwork and a cool design. Same material for it, a, a much like neater party overview, including four, five, and six characters that you can drop in here really really cool looking thing and made it available on drive-thru rpg you can pick this up for five bucks on drive-thru rpg this is a 5e game master screen for lazy gms built on the creative commons versions of the material and built on some of the design ideas from from this one but in a much more pretty format however before you go buy it for 5 bucks, if you are a patron of Sly Flourish, you can pick this up for 2 bucks instead. So Elizabeth and I worked out a deal where patrons of Sly Flourish can get this at a heavy discount, like 60% off or something like that. It's like 60% off. And you can get it directly off of the uh, Sly Flourish Patreon site. Go to your rewards if you're a Sly Flourish patron. Go to the, your reward post, which has all the rewards. Look for the GM screen, and there's a link in there that will give you three dollars off—a little bit less than that, like two dollars and ninety-five cents or something like that. Gets you the GM screen for two bucks, so you can go buy it for two bucks if you're a patron of Sly Flourish. So definitely worthwhile. Keeping in mind, of course, that being a patron of Sly Flourish only costs you two bucks, so it's actually cheaper to be a patron and go pick it up than it is to buy it directly. But if you don't want to sign up for Patreon, you don't like it, and you want to pick up the screen directly, you can just go straight to Drive-Through RPG and pick it up directly. You can find a link to that in the. Show notes below. Uh, really, really cool looking screen. A lot of, lot of utility to it. I have now been using this. What I do is I don't put it in a screen. I actually have an acrylic sheet on my desk and I slide it on my table and I slide it under there so I can just look down and I can pick out character, you yeah, know, I can pick out like monster stats, or I can look up conditions, or I can come up with some random stuff and random names and just pull it right off of the sheet. Really, really handy to have. Really ha- handy to have in front of you. So very cool. Thanks to Elizabeth for putting this together. It looks really good. Going on Patchwork Paladin is the brand, and you can pick that up on DriveThruRPG. Please check out the links below to pick that up. Last week, I talked all about my angst with D&D Beyond expanding itself to third-party publishers and what that meant as D&D Beyond becomes a greater gravity well for people's understanding of what 5th edition is, or for the 5th edition hobby overall. If for some reason my 30 minute rant about it last week wasn't enough for you. I spent an hour on the n an EN World talk show, Morris's unofficial tabletop podcast. Uh, talking about it with Jessica and with uh, Morris from EN World Publishing, it was a really awesome conversation. I've I felt like I've said pretty much everything I can say about this, trying to make trying to help people understand what the situation is and what the boundaries are and what this means and everything like that. It was a really really fun conversation. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, please check out uh, the EN World uh, uh, Morris's unofficial tabletop. Uh, pod and you can hear us talk about it we also talk about the mcdm kickstarter we talk about the ogl and 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 system reference documents we talk about publishing digital products and publishing structured digital text to support other virtual tabletops all of that uh, is in that podcast it's a really it was really really fun i listened to it after i was in it and i enjoyed even hearing us talking about it again so if you're interested in more about that please check that out and again you can find a link to that down in the show notes so talking about EN World Publishing, I wanted, I spent some time. I I, I picked up a physical copy of the Level Up Advanced 5V Adventurers Guide. And I have previously talked a lot about the Level Up 5V Monstrous Menagerie. And the reason why I focused on that book is I felt like that book was a pure easy replacement for the 2014 monster manual in many ways and for about a year now I have been replacing pretty much any time I was using a 2014 5e monster I was instead using the refined monsters that are in level up advanced 5e I enjoyed them more my players enjoyed them it was it, it worked they they work really well and they are a good drop in replacement but the question comes up about well what about like the player's handbook what about a bigger focus on this so I have owned all three books for a while but i have not really dove into level up advanced 5e's player guide the, the adventurer's guide to try to say like would this work as a good replacement for my group for 20 instead of using 2014 D, instead trying out level up advanced 5e so yesterday i sat down with a book nice drink some nice music and sat and gave the book which is extensive 600 page book a good surface level skim read And I thought we would talk about it here today under that question of like, is it worth buying? Is it worth trying out with your group? What, what what does it do? Why would you want to use it? What what does it offer that you might not find elsewhere? All those sorts of questions that I had going on in my head, and I wanted to talk about it today. So the Level Up Advanced 5 V Adventurer's Guide is a 659-page book. It is huge. Now, you can pick it up on PDF for $25. You, can, you also pick up the physical version for $60 with free shipping. And that's a pretty good deal for a book that's this large. It is a really, really large book. So I actually bought two copies of the Adventurer's Guide, because I do intend to talk to my players about using the Level Up 5e Adventures Guide as a replacement for the 2014 Players Handbook for my next couple of campaigns, because I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in here that I want to try with my group. I think it'll be interesting to see it. And before we immediately leap into the the minute we leap into things like Tales of the Valiant coming out and the 2024 version of D&D coming out later next year and C7020, I thought I'd actually like to try some of these full variants not just bringing in stuff but actually looking at full variants now the adventurer's guide is just one of three books i mentioned the monstrous menagerie there is also trials and treasure which is their example of a dungeon master's guide now what's interesting is trials and treasure and the monstrous menagerie are very easy to use regardless if you if you're playing fifth edition in any of its renditions it's very easy to use material from both of those books as almost a direct replacement for the stuff that you might use from either 2014 books or other accessory books. The examples are the treasure tables. You can use the treasure tables in Trials and Treasure. The environments, the exploration rules, all of that kind of stuff you can use directly out of Trials and Treasure. And of course, the monsters you can use from the Monsters Menagerie. That's a really easy drop-in. And talking to other GMs about, hey, pick up these books, pick up the PDFs, whatever you want to do, you can kind of grab onto them. Replacing that stuff is really easy because you can try it out and if it works, it works and use it. If you don't like it, you can stop using it and it doesn't change. Your whole campaign around they're just accessory books like any accessory book they're not you're not changing your entire campaign when you are deciding to drop in different treasure tables or different sort of exploration guidelines or things like that but when you replace the core book for the players you really are saying hey our campaign is going to be different the way we're going to operate this is going to be different. And that, that is kind of a bigger deal, which is why I wanted to take kind of a deeper look into the Adventurer's Guide. I do plan on taking a deeper look into the Trials and Treasure Guide and probably doing another spotlight on that, because that's probably an easier thing for you to kind of take and drop into your own 5e five, five e game if you want to try the stuff out that's, that's there. So the big question, should you, should you get it? Who, who is this for? So there's probably a few people, a few groups, that I think would resonate with this book and one of them is you want a crunchier version of 5e in particular you'd like to have more options for melee characters more, more options for non spellcasters that was one thing i didn't really grab onto when i had when i had originally heard about level up 5e and everything like that i never really paid a lot of attention to it but it has combat maneuvers that almost certainly rival the number of spells There are hundreds of different combat maneuvers in here that you can add to many different character types. So your berserkers get them, your adepts get them. So berserkers are your replacement for barbarians, adepts are your replacement for monks. All of those melee kind of characters have access to these maneuvers that they can use. They have maneuver points that they can use and they can do things with this. So it definitely adds, I would say like 50% more crunch to your melee character builds than you would get from from vanilla 5e so I think that right off the bat if you are interested in getting more accessories like that more stuff that you want to try out and still hang on to 5e right it's not a totally different RPG it's still 5th edition under its core so if you've got a group that has been playing 5e for a long time and you want to try adding new classes with all new sort of class features on them you can this, this book seems to fit there are certainly people who have been sort of disenfranchised by Wizards of the Coast and what they did during the OGL and and things like the you know sick and the pinkertons on on magic the gathering fans and stuff like that where they they would really rather play 5e and not support wizards i am not a follower of that idea i still buy books from wizards of the coast i still like them very much as publishers i still very much respect their designers i of course complain about them but it's easy to complain about lots of different things particularly when you have a company that's a hundred times bigger than just about any other company that operates at it but i do not my, my drive to talk about level up advanced 5e and Tales of the Valiant and C7020 and other ones is not to say you should play these instead of D&D it's to make sure that we look at the overall 5e hobby and say we can enjoy it lots of different ways including with 5th edition D&D but also with these other ones and we can pick and choose what we like to fit the kind of style that we want but if you are like hey I still like 5th edition but I'd rather not work with wizards this is an option for that too I'm not saying that that's the reason to use it but that that is certainly some people that would that would want to do it. So there are quite a few changes. One one of the questions is on compatibility, like how compatible is Level Up Advanced Five E to Vanilla Five E? And it really feels like from my from my kind of cursory again, I haven't run it. And one of the disclaimers I should make is that without having run it, you know, for a while, like at least a bunch of sessions, if not like maybe a year's worth of sessions. I can't really say how good it is. Like, I need to see it all operate. And all of these systems are going to have areas, they're all going to have rough edges, right? They're all going to have sharp little pointy bits that you're going to stick yourself on and say, ooh, I didn't like that part of it. That's just, the games this complicated are going to have that. Now, obviously, Ian... Ian World and Ian World Publishing is not nearly as big as Wizards of the Coast. They don't have nearly like the playtesting resources that Wizards of the Coast does. So I would expect things are going to have sharper edges in this than you might expect from something else. I haven't really seen any where I go, oh, God, that's just outright barbarous. And I've paid particular attention to spells and monsters. And those I've seen refinements that I really very much liked. So, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, oh, it's perfectly balanced, everything's going to be fine, particularly when you add in hundreds of new melee character options. Well, those are all brand new. So going back over the 2014 original spells for 5th edition and refining those based on what we know, and there's a lot of refinements to spells in this that I very much agree with and very much like. So with all of the refinements that have occurred for level up advanced 5e spells, those are all based, many of them, most of them, are based on existing 2014 5e spells that have been slightly refined. Things like, is fireball a little bit too powerful? Well, we're gonna create a 6d6 fireball instead of an 8d6 fireball. They still have an 8d6 fireball, it's just a rare spell, which is a pretty cool idea. Some spells in this are rare spells that you either have to research on your own or pick up as some kind of treasure, and that actually makes one of your spells just plain better. So you can still get an 8d6 fireball. they refine spells but working with something that already existed and refining it is different than creating like 300 new melee options and assuming all of those are going to be perfectly well balanced and everything is going to work out because that's all brand new stuff so i don't know how well those work i've only like taken a brief look at all the combat options and all of the all of the combat maneuvers and things like that to see how that works so I can't say it's perfectly balanced and what I would recommend and this is I think something about making a resilient version of our 5e hobby for us and our game is give you you know talk to the players and give yourself the room to modify something when it doesn't work right and it doesn't matter which version of 5e you're running or really any roleplay real game that you're running if something's not working for you in the group have that conversation with the players and say, like, maybe we'll just do it a different way. Or would, do we all agree that this didn't really work out exactly like we hoped? Let's just tweak it slightly. I've done that for when running Cobalt Press material. I've done that when running 2014 5e material. So there's definitely room to make that modification. And I would say that you probably you probably want to do so. So at, at its core, it is a fifth edition Uh, It's got all the kind of basic stuff that you would find in a fifth edition role playing game. Uh, There are some major differences, though, in character creation. For example, you do not have there is not like a a race and a sub race instead of having like a fixed race that determines not only what your physical aspects are, but also determines like your approach to the world. Those things are split out. And this is very much a modern idea that has come out of 2014 and 2014 come out away from 2014 D&D to basically say like, just because you're a tiefling doesn't mean you act a certain way. Just because you're an orc doesn't mean you act a certain way. Just because you're an elf doesn't mean you act a certain way. You can be an elf, but have grown up with other groups. And particularly when you think about heroic characters, a lot of times cool heroic characters grew up with different groups than whoever, whatever whatever their species happen to be. So you have typical heritage, which includes your... You know, dragonborn, dwarf, elf, gnome, halfling, human, orc, plane-touched, or a mixed heritage. Then you have cultures. Who did you grow up with? What did you learn from them? And what did you pick up from them? And there's a lot more of these. Caravaner, circus folk, itinerant, imperial, mountain dwarf, shadow elf. So in some cases, they took like what was typically a sub-race in the 2014 version and turned it into a culture. The neat thing is that no culture is tied to a heritage so you can pick what heritage you are and pick any culture you could be a gnome that isn't that that has a culture of an eladrin you could be a dwarf that has a culture of a stout halfling and that's because you grew up with different groups and and that works You also then add backgrounds to this, you know, and and this is what's interesting is the background is what adds in your ability modifiers. So you get your ability modifier based on what background you, you choose. And it's plus one to one specific ability and then plus one to anything of your choice. Frankly, if it were up to me, I like kind of the way Tales of the Valiant does it and just put your ability scores all in one thing and don't bother tying ability scores to anything else because you're just going to monkey around with the math anyway to get what you want. So, you know, I would and you could even house rule it here if you wanted to and just say skip the plus one plus one, change what your 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 standard array is, and then don't worry about it. tying ability scores. Pretty easy to do. Then a new one, which I think is pretty interesting, is the idea of a destiny. What is your character's main goal? What is the thing that they are driving for? What's the motivation? And they're using this instead of fixed alignment. So instead of having like, oh, I'm lawful good. It's like, but what are you trying to do? And they have things like chaos, coming of age, devotion, dominion, excellence, knowledge, metamorphosis, revenge, underdog, and wealth. I think all, those are all great. Chaos was the one that worried me. And the reason it worried me is because I think it's easy for a player to grab onto chaos and say, Oh, that's cool. I'm an agent of chaos. And then just be a pain in the ass in your group. Now when you read this section on what chaos is, it's not really like that. It's basically, you're trying to take down organization and stuff like that, but it still feels like one that would be pretty easy to misuse. And I think that's something where again, with you and your group, you could decide like, do we want to add that in there? or are you gonna say, we're going to take chaos off of the table because it just could end up being too disruptive. But you. you. You know, you could also read it, but you would want to make sure that whatever the agent of chaos is still is trying to accomplish whatever the group is trying to accomplish. I just found that one to be a little too um, a little too chaotic, I guess. Ability scores work pretty much the same way. Once you add in the ability score bonuses from your background, you can get an ability score standard array of 16, 14, 14, 12, 10, 8, which is just kind of a little bit of below what my standard ability score array is, but it works just fine. And again, you could just basically tell people pick 16, 14, 14, 12, 10, 8, put them wherever you want and don't worry about the ability scores for backgrounds that all works the same so when you're building your character you have heritage you have culture you have background you have destiny and then of course you have class so you have sort of five things that you're picking and my immediate reaction was wow that's a lot of things to like build a character like heritage culture background destinies and class you know but i mean like the original version of D was just class and sometimes your class was elf so are we really making this complicated but really what you're saying is you know you still had to pick a class and a subclass or still had to pick a race and a subrace in 5th edition, in 2014 5th edition. So that heritage and culture is basically that. And Destiny's is really just an expansion of the concept that the 2014 version of D&D had for your, your traits, your ideals, your bonds, your flaws, and stuff like that. So Destiny kind of grabs that one and it replaces alignment as well. So it's actually not quite as complicated as things go. Classes have, are a different have a, have changed some of the names of the classes and added, I think, at least one new class to it. Adepts are basically monks. So they replace the idea of monks that kind of gets away from sort of connecting it to just like an, an Asian sort of idea and saying, no, the adept is somebody who's like a a, you know, a living weapon that hones control over their body, mind, and channels their energy. You know, got a lot of monk stuff. The interesting thing, is, again, is like the adept, when you start to add in the combat maneuver ideas... They have a lot of options. When I was reading through the Adept, I was like, wow, that is a lot of options. Your bard, your berserker is your barbarian, of course. Cleric and druid fighter. Herald is your the equivalent of a paladin, right? So if you're looking for uh, a holy knight, the herald is sort of the holy knight. I'm not sure exactly why they changed that from paladin. There probably is some reason for it. I had never really heard that Paladin is like a big issue. The Marshal is interesting because this is very much like your Warlord character class from 4th edition. A lot of people lamented the fact that there wasn't a Warlord, that the Warlord was an interesting character class. It was kind of like a Bard, and actually what Wizards of the Coast has done is sort of made the Bard more like a Warlord with the things that the Bard does, but the Warlord was kind of a different thing. It was sort of the battlefield tactician character who not only could fight in melee but could also help other people and command other people in melee to do certain things so they have that now with the marshal the ranger rogue sorcerer warlock and wizard all from the standard fifth edition fifth edition sort of ideas one of the mechanical differences that exists inside of level up advanced 5e and you'll see this in other areas too you'll see this in magic items you'll see it in certainly in the adventures guide i don't think i ran into it too much in the monstrous menagerie itself is this concept called expertise and expertise is a way to sort of be particularly good at something it sort of stacks with advantage and disadvantage and essentially whenever you have the option to add expertise you add a d4 onto your d20 roll kind of like having a bless if you're an expert in a particular subset of a of a of a skill you can you have expertise and you can roll on that if for some somehow you gain More expertise in particular thing, maybe through circumstance, you have one thing where you get it natively and then you get some other circumstance that that gives you greater expertise. You don't roll two. instead. What you do is you step up the die. So you go from a d4 to a d6 or a d6 to a d8. Once you've gone to a d8, you can't go any higher. So you can essentially bump your expertise die, your your expertise dies dice up as you gain expertise. An example of where this plays out is in skills, you actually get to pick two sort of sub skills, things particular, narrow disciplines of a skill that you would have expertise in. An example, like I when I think about it for my Empire of the Ghouls game, for example, one of my players is a an occultist. They kind of are interested in things of the occult. And so they could be trained in Arcana, and they are, but they could also have expertise in particular ways of, of understanding the occult, which would mean that not only do they roll with their ability bonus and their proficiency bonus, they would also add an expertise die to that whenever they're doing it. That sort of replaces what I do, which is I tend to say like, because you you're an expert in the occult and this one, I'm going to grant you advantage on this role. So is it an extra complication? Yeah, but it's kind of a neat way to sort of add another little slider onto being a, a, benefit of, a benefit of a deeper level of knowledge that you have somewhere else. There are a lot of times where Level Up Advanced 5e takes a concept that exists in the standard 2014 D&D 5e and expands upon it. An example is like having different kinds of weapon types. So masterwork weapons, or rare rare weapons you know this idea of like taking it up just a further notch so that you, you you know adding like a little bit of a degree of of complication to a particular a particular item you know breaker we- weapon deals double damage onto unintended objects compounding defensive uh there are different kinds of shields now so there are lightweight shields that have a less of an ac bonus and heavy shields that have more of an ac bonus really heavy shields actually give you like de- bonuses to dexterity saving throws versus things that require dexterity lots of stuff like that uh, there's actually uh, weapon and armor breakage rules as well Uh, in which the GM can decide that under certain circumstances weapons weapons and armor might go through some trauma of their own and have to make essentially saving throws on the items and then it costs a certain amount of money and takes a certain check in order to fix and repair it. So that it sort of adds this weapon durability feature to it if that's something that you want. What I particularly like about it is essentially up to the GM to decide if they're going to even bother smashing up people's weapons. But you might say, well you got rolled over by a giant boulder so I'm going to need your armor and your weapon to make these checks to see if they were damaged. Even if they're damaged, they're still usable, but they could end up breaking if things go if things if things go bad. So lots of areas where they said like because it is level up advanced 5e was let's take some of the concepts from 5e and let's move them forward even just a little bit more. Now it's up to you. You might decide like you know what the extra complications are just a hassle for me. I actually want less of that complication. The nice thing is we have that option. If you want something that feels like D and D but is much more lightweight than you have things like shadow dark rpg which i've been running and very much enjoying or you could just say no we're going to stick to the standard 2014 D&D, or no we want to add some new things to it and you can probably grab components of this idea and bring it into your regular 5e game and let it work there so in the same way that i brought the level up advanced 5e monsters menagerie into my game you could probably bring in just some core components to it Here's the example of the uh, armor durability table where like if your if your scale armor gets broken, you can make a DC fifteen check with Smith's tools and access to a forge to try to fix your armor. So kind of a neat way. And you might have to say, like, well, that means I need to I need to swap out my gear more often because sometimes your gear, your gear goes bad. A couple of other areas where level up advanced 5 e has sort of uh, added some things that, that have been relatively common complaints in the 2014 version of DD is that supplies don't really matter that the idea of having food and having fresh water when you're kind of going through overland exploration is something that has it goes by the wayside very quickly if you have a druid with goodberry you don't ever have to worry about food again if you have purify water or create water you really don't have to worry about water again and they put a system in here that gives, regardless of like what level of play or what level of spells you have, you still need to have that. And it's the way they did it was essentially by attaching two things to your long rest. That a long rest and level up advanced five requires really three things. Eight hours of uninterrupted light, light work, i.e. we're just resting. A safe haven, i.e. a place that is actually safe for you to spend your time and rest and supplies, that you need to have supplies available to you. There are very few spells that actually provide supplies. And when they do, it is a limited amount. So you don't have spells like Goodberry that give everybody something to eat every day that's only like a level one Druid spell. You don't have something like Create like create Water. Creates water, but not water you can drink. It's non, non-potable non water. So they've limited the resources. Now you might say, oh God, that sounds like a complete pain in the ass. And who wants to worry about that stuff? Well, then this might not be the system for you. But if you are the kind of like, well, no, we always want exploration to kind of matter. And we want it to matter that a ranger can go forage for food and we want to know that like you know encumbrance matters bringing food with you matters and that kind of thing well then you can add that in what's kind of interesting to me is that baldur's gate 3 this tremendous hit you know number one what was the the game of the year right triple a game of the year for for this year fifth edition based role-playing game you need to go find food, right? It doesn't matter what level you are. You, If you want to camp, if you want to rest, you have to have supplies. And you, you know, supplies could be anything. It could be 12 apples, apparently. But you can. You need to, in order to have that supply in order to do it. What's kind of funny in Baldur's Gate 3 is it never really mattered to me. I always had enough supply, and it was always easy for me to get supplies. So I don't think I ever had to think about rest. Now, it does put a limit on, hey... This is a way to make sure that you can't just rest anywhere. It's another sort of thing you can attack. Oh, your food is getting spoiled. Well, now that really matters. So it's it kind of gives you another way to make the game a little bit more challenging and give players something else that they have to think about. Again, this is important for 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 something that's like a level up advanced 5e right this idea of expanding it on further making things a little bit more complicated in order to go with that story that means travel changes it means resting changes means a lot of different components that change with that again that shadow dark also has that even though shadow dark is a very simplified version of dnd shadow dark also has a thing that you have to carry rations with you and you need to use those rations if you're going to rest and recover that you can't just kind of skip those things and it's important and encumbrance matters and things like that so taking a look at things like combat maneuvers, we can look at the fighter and, and right off the bat, you, you get all like your typical fighter stuff of, are you two weapon fighter? Are you, you fight with a great weapon fighting, do you fight with one big weapon? But then you immediately get into combat maneuvers, which pretty much everybody gets. At first level, you gain the ability is combat maneuvers. You gain proficiency in two combat traditions of your choice. You learn three maneuvers of your choice from traditions you're proficient with. So you get particular slices, just like spell schools. You have martial traditions that you can learn. And that way there's a certain one that work well for monks. There's another that works well for fighters or berserkers or whatever you have these different lanes and then those kind of determine what you want again they basically created a spell system for weapon for weapon types you have a number of times that you can use this and a number of times that you get those back after you after you use them so you can see like, what's the degree of maneuver. This is almost like spell school or spell level, right? What level of a maneuver can you pick up as you level up? How many maneuvers that you, that you, how many maneuvers you can know in order to pull those off. And then you have to use expertise dice in order to inflict those maneuvers. So really has a lot. And again, I haven't played this out. So I really want to see what this is like in play, but it seems like it adds a whole bunch of new features that you would, that you get with this version of uh, 5e. One thing I think is kind of neat is they they took a house rule that I've used before, which is the idea that when you take a critical hit and you have a shield, you can sacrifice your shield and have it destroyed in order to remove the crit. I think that's kind of a fun a fun thing to do. We've we, I've used that in my game before. That's actually one of the core rules in here, and again shows you the different kinds of shields you have: light, medium, heavy, and tower shields. How you use those that that's kind of interesting. Even on top of all of the different martial disciplines and martial abilities you get, you still have feats, so you still have that kind of component to character customization as well it also includes a full refined downtime system how do you want to have your downtime what kind of stuff you can do with your downtime how long it takes how much you have to spend all those dcs that's all in here as well i haven't i didn't dive too deep into it to be like is this tradition is this just way better than what exists in current vanilla 5e i haven't really seen it but it is nice i am sure they have taken a good look at refining that whole system and it looked pretty good from what i saw I thought this was pretty neat. One of the big questions was like, what if I want to start my game at a level higher than first? What do I do? Well, not only do they have sort of a starting wealth by character, but for each of the character classes, they broke down. If you're starting at this tier, this is what you have. This is kind of really handy way of just saying, bang, here's your first, you know, if you want to have some starting gear for your character and you're you're picking at a particular class or particular picking out a particular level, this is the stuff that class would have for that level. I thought, I thought that was a cool addition that I have not seen in, in other systems. Has a whole system for strongholds. I didn't take a good look at this to see how good is it, how well does it work, what kind of stuff, but it looks pretty neat. The idea that you can buy everything from a mountaintop or underwater layer to one that's in a pocket dimension and how much that costs. Looks like something that you could spend some 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 serious money on. Stronghold prestige can cost you a hundred thousand gold, so that makes sense. Strongholds in this do offer things like as you build your stronghold out your characters get certain abilities that that matter to it I thought that was I thought I thought that looked pretty cool So I didn't dive too deep into this and I didn't compare it for example to the strongholds that the 2024 version Unearthed Arcana had in them nor have I compared them to to strongholds and followers and how that works They do offer multi-classing and feats I can't remember if if feats are considered an optional feature or not I know that you do get your ability score modifiers as a as like the default feat but i don't know if they basically said like hey feats you know the expectation is that feats are an option that that player that the gm would describe they do have more prerequisites for feats so skills have a couple of different things. One is I really thought it was neat that they have sort of a critical success and critical failure tables for skills. But also then there was that idea of like having skill specialties and things that are narrower. And there's another section of the book. I can't remember where it is right now, but there was a whole thing about like, what are some specializations that would exist underneath certain skills? You can pick from the ones that exist under here, but you can also create your own or you and the GM, you know, presuming you're a player, or as the GM, you can say, these are some other specializations that particular skills might have so that you can add that expertise, that that expertise die to it. I was happy to see that they still hung on to the option to play this game using theater of the mind or abstract maps. I saw this both with spells and with monster abilities that work well regardless of whether you're playing on a grid. So even though it is a very crunchy RPG with a lot of other tactical options, particularly in melee combat area, they still recognize that some people like myself like to play without using a focus grid. So flanking, for example, does exist in this, not as, not even as an optional rule, although my understanding is flanking is used quite often in 2014 anyway, and even though it says like when you're flanking, you 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 have to be both on opposite sides of the character of the creature that you're facing. You can't. It's not just whether or not two creatures are engaged with you, but you actually have to be on opposite sides. You can also fight back to back, which is pretty interesting. But if you want to run flanking uh, without a grid, you can instead say when you have three characters that are surrounding a, a group that that results in the flanking bonus. So I thought that that was a a good way to. Uh, Offset the idea that some people Are going to be playing with a grid some people are going to be Playing using theater of the mind I was glad to see that It still uh, supports theater of the mind Says if you are not using a grid For combat flanking instead occurs when three or more Creatures are attacking the same creature in melee You really got it surrounded And you gain an expertise die on that action so it isn't that you get advantage you get to add your expertise die that was one thing i thought like getting advantage on flanking felt like a whole lot to me but the idea of getting an expertise die that expertise die is really a way for level up advanced 5e to sort of add the plus two bonus that used to be there in third edition and fourth edition sort of the way to give a little boost but not so much that you getting like the equivalent of a plus five bonus like you do with getting advantage one big question is compatibility. How how compatible is this? And what does compatibility mean? And as we see all of these different versions of 5e starting to come out, there are different degrees of compatibility. My initial assessment, my initial thought was that it wasn't likely that the subclasses from other 5th edition products could work with the characters that you got in Level Up Advanced 5e. But other people told me that, no, they can work. That because the subclasses drop in at the same point, if you have subclasses and another supplement that you want to drop in the Level Up Advanced 5e, that it should work just fine. The The main claim that I've heard Ian ian publishing say is a character from level up advanced 5e can play alongside a character from 2014 DD just fine that all of the basic rules of the game are still there it doesn't mean that one character won't have significantly more things that it can do it doesn't mean that they're both perfectly well balanced but it means that if you had somebody who just wanted to play their regular old 2014 character they could next to advanced 5e however it really is up to the gm to decide what elements of level up advanced 5e you're going to run in your game and if you're going to run with like the adventurer's guide there are things like the the, the specialty dice and uh, the encumbrance rules and um, safe havens and uh, new status effects like doomed or strife and things like that If you're going to include options from this book, you're going to include some of those rules in it. So it probably would make sense for the GM to say if you're going to allow level up advanced 5e in your game from a character perspective. Again, you can bring lots of ideas on the GM side and and no one's the wiser. But if you're going to bring character options from level up advanced 5e into your game, you probably want to make it a level up advanced 5e game, which means some of the stuff from other 5e are compatible. Now, of course, adventures and things like that are going to remain compatible. You can you can run, you know, the DC listing is still the same. Monster stat blocks from other supplements would work just fine with this. So in many ways, Level Up Advanced 5e is compatible with 5e, just like everything else. But it's going to be interesting to see how... Level Up Advanced 5e's subclass system for example. That to me the big one is subclasses. Are subclasses compatible or not? And I've heard some people say yeah, they're absolutely compatible. I also read other people that said no, it's not nearly as compatible as you think. But it's a it kind of different, you know, it kind of depends on what people mean by the definition of compatible. Does that mean underpowered or overpowered? Well, if, that doesn't matter if you can still use it. It's a question of compatibility. Could you use like the subclasses from Tome of Heroes from Kobold Press with character classes from Level Up Advanced 5e? I I kind of don't know I, I can't i can't really see until i see but i think it could be very interesting so if you are looking in short if you are looking for an alternative take on the fifth edition of D that is well produced beautiful book that has been well refined and you might want and, you, and definitely adds uh, a fair bit of complexity and n- interesting bits of crunch to things like exploration combat maneuvers skill special special things like that you probably want to check out level up advanced 5e it looks really cool myself i am going to bring this up as an option to my players for the next couple of campaigns that i run and say hey how would we like to try running fifth edition games using level up advanced 5e instead of the 2014 version of DD and see how it goes and then when tales of the valley comes out maybe do the same thing when c7020 comes out maybe do the same thing when 2024 DD comes out maybe do the same thing that way we have lots of different versions we can pick from the ones we We like, we can ideally as GMs pick components from the ones we like our players can pick the version they like, and we can have a very interesting, very rich version of 5e that we, that we do at our table. So. Last week, we talked about ways that we can make our relationship, our hobby with fifth edition, more resilient so that no one company, regardless of what they do, uh, can affect how we run this game and play this game for our group. And the big one was trying to break our reliance on digital tools for the most part, or particularly breaking our reliance on any single digital tool. I focused a lot on D&D Beyond because it's kind of the big one. But the reality is anytime you focus on any digital tool, you're kind of under the whims of what that tool is going to do or how it's going to change over time. But one way that we can keep our game resilient is by recognizing that we can use paper-based character sheets. So rather than just kind of say, oh, you should all use paper-based character sheets, which, you know, people are going to use them or not, or people like their online tools, and there's lots of different tools that we can use. Lots of people have been using spreadsheets and things like that. There's lots of advantages to building, using paper-based character sheets, and I wanted to talk about some of those today, both why you might want to consider it and ways that you can make it easier for you to use. And I talked to lots of GMs, I got lots of feedback about ways that people have been using paper-based character sheets that we can all share and learn from. So we're going to take a look at that. This is actually a draft of an article that I'm going to write on Sly Flourish, publish on Sly Flourish eventually, but I'm using it as sort of a guide for our conversation here today. And one thing that's really neat is like when you're write, using a paper-based character sheet, you're using technology that's 5,000 years old, right? There are concepts to using paper that have been around for so long, way longer than we've had mobile devices, way longer than we've had the internet and computers and everything else. So there's there's a degree of flexibility that you get when you're using a paper-based character sheet that you just don't get with digital tools. So why, do we want, why would we use paper character? sheets instead of uh, digital character sheets. What advantages do we have? So flexibility. You're not locked into anything. When you're using a paper-based character sheet, you can write anything you want on it. You can write any way you want on it. There's nothing that says this thing can only be this way. There's no issues with any of those kinds of things. You can use your sheet if your group decides we really like 5e. We just wish we started with five extra hit points. All you have to do is add those five extra hit points. You never have to go back and like tweak at every level or figure things out or figure out how you can customize your hit points or anything like that. If you have particular house rules or particular supplements are using that go against the grain of your digital tool, it's really hard to add those things in there. It can be really hard to add those things in there. Paper, it's super easy because it's super flexible. So flexibility is really important. Disconnection. Honestly, we could probably use a little less time focused on our digital devices. And if we can take our digital devices and set them aside for a few hours while we're playing our D&D game, you can draw pictures on a notepad, you can draw maps and you can use your paper-based character sheet. There's an advantage to that. There's an advantage to living in the moment. We, I think we are living in like constant FOMO that there's some other thing happening somewhere on the internet. And if only I could get to the right URL to use the right app at the right time to connect with that, it'd be even better. It's like, how about you spend time with your friends right now enjoying the game that you're that you're running? Spend, live in the moment. And one of the ways we can do that is by disconnecting and using paper-based characters helps us disconnect. Resilience, they'll last a long time. If you treat that sheet of paper really well, it could last the rest of your life. It could last hundreds of years. It could last thousands of years. Now maybe you're saying like, I don't really need my character sheet to last a thousand years but there's an advantage when you have your paper-based character sheet you've got you you're, you're using your character sheet the way you use it you don't have to worry about a tool being online we've heard it where there have been weekends where whatever favorite tool people have been using to track their characters goes down for a couple of hours nothing's going to go down that's going to take away your, your your paper-based character sheet independence when you're using paper-based character sheets when you have your book you have your dice you have your pencils you have your your, your paper you're independent. You don't depend on anybody else. You don't depend on anything else. There's no tool that you're like, that, that, my internet connection has to stay online. Or that tool has to keep doing it the way I wanted to do it. Or the tool has to stay in business. Or whatever the issue is. You don't have to worry that your game is dependent upon the whims of somebody else, the whims of another company. You've got everything you need right in front of you. And, and there, it's going to run. And nostalgia. There's just something fun about playing this game the way it's been played for 50 years. There's something cool about that. If you're a GM who believes in this, tugging on that nostalgia with your players is one of the ways to get them to think more about using a paper-based character sheet. Isn't it cool to play this game the same way we played? So that's why you might want to do it. And maybe you don't agree with me. You don't agree with me? Cool. You can't say nobody didn't tell you though, right? You can't say, hey, if you don't think any of those things are reasonable, that's fine, right? If you think, oh, the internet's always going to be online. I never have to worry about that. My favorite digital tool is never going to change. It's always going to support me well. Well, you can't say nobody didn't tell you. Because, you know, things can happen and things have happened, right? This is not hypothetical. There's definitely been times where online tools have gone down. There's definitely been times when companies decided to take online tools down that were dependent upon for play. There's definitely times where companies went out of business and you lost access to all this stuff. All of this stuff is happening all the time. None of this is theoretical. What about actually using it? What are some tips for actually using a paper-based character sheet? This is my favorite one, which is write down page numbers. If you have a big, thick book full of spells or combat maneuvers or whatever, and you add them into your sheet, but you don't want to write the entire description down on your sheet, write the page number down. It's a very simple trick. This is like hyperlinking from 5,000 years ago. You write down the page number, and it becomes much easier for you to reference. What is that spell? Flip, flip, flip. You find it, you read it. So write down your page number. Think of your character sheet as your custom index to the rule book. Right, that, that's one main thing. And talk to your players about to it, test them on it, you know, help them out. And it, it's a little harder because like i got to remember to write it down. But boy, when they do it in the beginning, it is way easier to do it. Use index cards. There's lots of ways to use index cards along with your character sheet to handle things like if you want to track hit points separately so you're not wearing out one particular part of your character sheet. Or you want to write down magic items. Or you want to write down some of the information about the powers that you have. Index cards are a great, flexible tool, both for GMs, but particularly for players, to track information in their character sheet in a way that's a little bit more disposable. Maybe you have a one-use magic item. You write it on there. You put a check. Box, you're done, you tear it up, we've used that magic item, and away it goes. And of course, use paper clips. Somebody brought this up. Use paper clips to connect it all together. Don't use staples, use paper clips. And paper clips to keep your index cards and your character sheet together. Real basic paper-based organization skills. Use sheet protectors. I got a lot of people that talked about this, that you can get uh, for pretty low price, sheet protectors that you can slide your sheets of paper in. And the cool thing is then you can dry erase on it. So you can dry, I used to do this in the fourth edition days. We'd use the online character builder, which is no longer up, by the way, you can't use it anymore, to, to take your fourth edition character sheets, slide them in, and then you could write on them with a dry erase marker. And it worked really, really well. So I did that I did that many years ago and I liked it. One thing that goes along the lines of putting your sheet in a uh, sheet protector, other people took bits of packing tape. So you can actually get clear p- packing tape and put that over the hit point part of your character sheet. So you don't have to, if you don't have a character protector sheet protector, you can put some packing tape over it and dry erase on that. And that actually works really well because you're gonna protect that part of the character sheet, but you can use a dry erase marker and then erase it with your thumb. So you can do that for like the hit point area. You could do it for other areas. Again, those check boxes that you wanna check off. If you don't wanna constantly use a pencil and then erase, you could instead put a piece of tape over that and write over the piece of tape. I thought that was pretty neat. Another one for me personally, use quality paper. It doesn't cost that much more. Get good 32 pound paper. When you print out character sheets on that paper, it feels good. Don't get tissue paper. don't write your character sheet on tissue paper write it on good quality paper spend the extra money to get to get that stuff i had some really good conversations with other people about this both on en world and on the Sly flourish youtube channel i'll link to both of those in the show notes for this if you want to see a whole bunch of different ones i took those all together and kind of looked through them and took some of the best of tips tips that other people brought up more commonly and i thought or other tips where i saw oh that's a really good idea one was write lightly with the pencil so it's easy to erase if you just change your technique a little bit So that when you're writing things down that you plan on changing, don't write so hard and then it's not so hard to erase. Along with that, use a kneaded eraser, a kneaded eraser instead of using the little orange eraser on the back of your pencil, which just burrows a hole straight through your paper, that a good quality eraser is going to make it way easier to erase. Somebody brought up using different colored pencils or highlighters to note different features or abilities, particularly if like action types. All my bonus actions are written using, you know, orange. All my actions are written using green, my reactions are in purple. You can use color to help you reference your sheet and say, "What are the actions I should be paying attention to? What are the bonus actions I should be paying attention to?" That works well. Right in boxes, this was a neat one. If you have uh, certain things like spell slots or short rests or combat maneuvers or whatever that you're tracking, you can write little boxes on your character sheet in pen, but then check them off in pencil. That way, if you erase them, the boxes stay, but the pencil erasers, the, the, the pencil marks will go away. It's a good way of like resources that are you're continually going up and down with hit dice and things like that. I mean, most of those are on the character sheet already, but if you have new stuff, like a, if you have a one use magic item that works once per day, you can put a big ink box next to it and check that off when you've used it and then erase the check and it won't erase the ink box this is another one of my own that i think really helps track damage done not hit points remaining this is weird instead of subtracting damage from your hit points instead you know what your max hit points are track instead the amount of damage you've taken And it's just easier to add up. And I I know this because I do it with monsters all the time. That it's way easier for me to add numbers up than it is to subtract numbers down. I don't know why, but I know I'm not the only one where that's the case. Counting up is just faster than counting down. So track damage done, not hit points remaining. Some RPGs, this is the default uh organize actions by action types if you if you have a way to organize them on your sheet again the highlighting i think really works your actions bonus actions reactions note the types So note which ones are actions bonus actions or reactions next to them again the highlighter can help i think is really cool some brought up that you can build your own sheet that's optimized for you and your character class so if you really want to spend some time with it you can make a character sheet on your own that is built for you for how you like to operate with a character class that you're running Quick reference sheets are another one. I like drawing pictures on the character sheet. Go ahead and draw a picture of your character. Be a kid again. Don't worry about mucking up your sheet. It's always kind of cool to see characters, to see pictures of your characters. Don't worry about making your sheets perfect. Every one of those little soda stains, the little Cheetos, thumbprints, little scribbles, the wear and tear, all of that, all of that is, is all of those are things that make your character sheet unique and remind you of what your game was like. So don't, It's kind of cool in the same way that I think, go ahead and write in your books. I get yelled at every time I say this. T- write notes in your books, it's okay. It now took a book that everyone else had to a book that is unique to you. So make your book your own, go ahead and write in it. In the same way, don't let them bash up your character sheet. It's kind of fun to have them ugly. So those are all tips for how to use paper-based character sheets. There is, To me, there is a distinct advantage in using character sheets that you are not dependent on any technology. You get to disconnect from your technology. If you have any weird house rules or any ways that you're mixing in stuff, you don't have to worry about whether your tool supports the thing that you wanna do. Paper supports pretty much everything. So those are all good reasons to do it. And with a few of these tips, I think we can make it easier. I would love to hear more. So if you have more tips for how you've managed to use paper-based character sheets in ways that have made it a lot easier for you, I am all ears because I haven't yet posted this article up, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in doing it. But really, I think there's just something fun. This is what makes our game, this, this hobby of ours, so powerful is unlike almost every other major hobby that has become digitized. We still have control over this one completely. We still have the books in front of us, our pencils, our dice, our paper, and we can play it with our friends, and we are not beholden to any technology, any tool, or anything else. It's really a fantastic way to play the game. So consider using paper-based character sheets, talk to your players about it, talk to them about the advantages of using paper-based character sheets. Maybe challenge them a little bit and say, hey, for this game we'd like to we'd like to try using paper character sheets show them and and have the players that are on board show the people who aren't how much more advantageous this this style of game can be every month on the slyflowers patreon we post a patreon q a anybody can ask a question i answer all of the questions every friday morning with a nice cup of coffee some of those questions make their way to shows here other ones become catalysts for other videos or other articles that i do other times Mitch says, I love the secrets and clues section of the eight steps and got to use it for the first time in my last game, which was our second session. Unfortunately, I ran into the issue of my players latching onto every seed they came across, and one player even came straight out and said, hey, what are we supposed to be doing? So I reassured them about what thread was the active quest and told them the rest were all just potential hooks for future adventures. Is there a good way to give out a secret while also expressing that, hey, this isn't the end of the world. You don't need to drop everything to do this, but but it's there if you're interested." So it sounds like the kinds of secrets you put out there were adventure hooks. And it's important to know that secrets and clues, aren't always adventure hooks. And you probably, you know, you, you you saw what happens if they are all hooks. You don't want to give 10 adventure hooks out to people. It secrets and clues cover a wide range of different things. Some of them can be adventure hooks. Some of them can be actionable things that the characters can go do. But a lot of times it's things that are, it's important that they are relevant to the characters. That doesn't mean that they are actionable. It means things like they could learn a little bit of history. It's the, because they're they're called secrets and clues because they are mysteries that the players didn't know that now they know once they've discovered it. And that can be things like the history of a location. It can be things like how an enemy is maneuvering while they're doing their thing. It can be, you know, history of a particular army from long ago based on the type of armor that they find. So secrets and clues aren't always actionable the only real action that should come from it is that the player goes, ah, well that's interesting, or huh, that tells me a little bit more about why we're doing it. Now, one of the things is secrets and clues can reinforce the current hook. They can give them more motivation to do the things that, that they're that they doing now, not the motivation to go and do things elsewhere. So when you're looking at your secrets and clues, ask yourself if those are hooks that they're gonna grab onto and try to run with. So secrets and clues, you, know, you can sit and look at your 10 secrets and clues and ask yourself, Are these gonna draw the characters away from their current quest or are they gonna help reinforce the quest that they're working on now or tell them other information about what's going on now sometimes it could be stuff that they're only gonna learn about far away things like oh we did learn that the villain has maneuvered in some particular way the villain has been buying up mercenaries and their actions well what should we do about that and like I don't know should we go investigate the birds they might try to run and do something with it and that could be something where you need to explain to the players like hey you're gonna learn lots of things that you can't necessarily or don't need to necessarily necessarily act on now and i think that that's a fine way to go but it sounds like you've m- mostly been using the secrets and clues as a way to push forward more adventure hooks when you're going to get too many adventure hooks so and that can happen but generally it's important to understand that the, uh, the value of a secret and clue is that it's relevant to players but not necessarily something you have to do something with right now i hope that helps scott as V says, one of my players is taking an extended absence for personal reasons. So instead of moving the story f- story forward with the- without them, we're pivoting to do a sequel mini campaign for the next larger campaign with all of us, uh, with all of us to get our feet wet with Eberron. Any advice for running prequel campaigns? If you were going to do a prequel campaign for your second morning campaign, what would you focus on? I don't know the difference between a prequel campaign and a campaign. So if you... You could certainly run a small campaign in a setting to kind of get an understanding of something that's going on. And maybe there are lines that will connect one campaign to another campaign. The problem when you consider a campaign, a prequel campaign, is are you presupposing what the main campaign is going to be and forcing the pre-campaign to follow that lead when it might just be more interesting to run a small campaign? and not worry about what the connections are. So if you are just trying Eberron out, you could say, hey, we're gonna do a six session Eberron mini campaign that's gonna be focused on its own story and its own thing. And you could drop little hints and seeds about the future campaign you're thinking of, but you don't have to connect them too tightly and the advantage of that is you're not going to railroad your prequel campaign to support whatever your main campaign idea was because what if they find a different path or what if they change things too much or what if you know there's so many ways that that can go wrong that would force you to push the campaign in one direction when it feels like to me a more open way to do it would be to run just a separate campaign and as a small one and you could set it in the same setting And again, you can, as you go, if you know, hey, I know what my main campaign is going to be about, but you didn't really tell the players yet, you can drop little seeds in as they make sense, kind of like secrets and clues, but you don't have to tie them so tightly together that you are going to force the prequel campaign to fit perfectly in with the beginning of the main campaign, which I think could end up railroading players. So that's, that's what I would, that's what I would offer up. Just run a small campaign. And enjoy that Ben H says I recently started an odyssey of the dragon lords for my online group this campaign is slated to run for one to two years and around 70 sessions which is much longer than my previous which ran for about 35 sessions do you have any tips for running really long campaigns while also keeping up pacing and not having my players get bored with their characters also in terms of prep how far in advance should be planned out that's two questions you cheated you got two questions in there Always focus on whatever your next session is going to be. So try to make each session interesting based on what happened in the previous session and the directions you think the campaign is going to go. So instead of worrying about like what's going to happen 40 sessions from now, you can instead just say like, what are you going to do to make the next session as interesting as possible? Now it's possible campaigns fizzle out. In fact, I think the last time I did a poll on this, most campaigns fizzle out rather than run a solid ending, which makes me very sad. But I think that was true that more of them through other circumstances just stopped before they actually hit a conclusive ending. When you're preparing for something like Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, I think it's really important to understand what the arc of the campaign is overall. What are the major milestones? What are the major beats? Without getting into the details of every room of a dungeon. So I think it's worth taking the look at the campaign, figure out what they are. Think about the things that excite you. Look for areas that you want to foreshadow and stuff like that. Kind of staying one step ahead, one chapter ahead when you're actually running it so you can feed feed stuff in earlier. But, you know... I mean if you can reading the book is really great but like a big book like Odyssey of the Dragon Lords that's a great big read. So instead you got to kind of skim. You usually have chapter summaries. Go into the chapter summaries, see what you like and see how you can sort of bring that stuff that that stuff back. But the main thing is not worrying about like exactly how many sessions it's going to be or cuz you don't want filler episodes. So if people get it if their people are moving through faster, great, let them. And if there are parts that are boring, cut them. But you know, that idea of like trying to maintain a pace so that you're following the adventure isn't nearly as important as maintaining a pace that stays interesting for you and your group. So those, those, are, those would be my tips is, is, you know, think one session ahead. Think about what you're going to be doing for the next game. Focus on that. Read, the un- read it and have an understanding of where are things going and drop little seeds and hints in as they make sense. But really be focused on what you're going to be doing for the next session for the game that you run friends i want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today we talked about all things in ttrpgs if you enjoyed this show and you want to see more stuff like this please consider subscribing to the sly flourish newsletter it's absolutely free to sign up you get an adventure generator free for signing up and you get a weekly rpg related email with tips for running your own games plus links to all of the things that i do elsewhere you can also support me directly on patreon patrons get access to all kinds of tools tips tricks source books books of adventures, all kinds of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. It's a really good deal and it helps me put on shows like this. And you can pick up any of my books, including Forge of Foes, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy Dam's Workbook, and the Lazy Dam's Companion, and all the fantastic books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. Links for all of that are in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.